Sam Smith is uh, returning to Dandara Living. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't an easy decision to make. So, um, bit of a new turn, bit of a, a whirlwind year for me this year. He had an off-the-peg suit from Next and uh, was driving around in a Peugeot convertible that looked quite swanky and I thought, right, I, I, I want to go do that. <laughs> and actually realised I'd taken probably too much of a big step. I decided to take a step back, but I'd bitten off a bit more than I could chew. I remember my mum saying to me, well, if you leave, you can't come back. And, you know, I could have probably carried on working for them and who knows, I could have eventually taken over the business. but. I kind of needed to spread my wing and that was like a, a light bulb moment for me. Sometimes I lose people along the way because I'm too focused on the end goal. For anyone listening to this that may have worked with me back then, I do apologise. Hi Sam, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Um, first question, what is the hardest change that you've been through in your life? Um, I'd say the hardest change for me was coming out of being managed to be becoming a manager. Uh, I think professionally, that's been one of the biggest challenges I had in my career to date. Um, and actually, I, you know, I, I'd be safe to say I, I wasn't that good at it at, at the beginning. Uh, and I've had to work on it and, and, and do a lot of um, a lot of self-reflection over that period of time when I first kind of stepped into becoming a manager. Uh, and I think I, you know, probably fell into that gap of an accidental manager. So didn't really have that 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 training and that support uh, in the first instance. So that would be one of the biggest challenges that I faced at the time and probably something that I still work on very much today. Now I manage, you know, bigger teams and uh, bigger businesses. So when you say that you found that, you, you say you weren't very good at it. Like, looking back, <laughs> how... What do you mean by that that you weren't very good at? What were you? What have you had to work on? Um, I think a lot of people, when you're stepping out into the, a manager, becoming a manager of people, because you're good at one particular job. So I, I worked in property management, have done for the majority of my career, um, and I was a very good property manager, um, very good with client relationships, very good with managing, you know, sort of tenants and expectations and that sort of thing and then I got offered an opportunity to move into a managing a property management team so my expectations of my team where they would they would do what I do um and just because I was a good property manager doesn't mean I was going to be a very good people manager and the, the problem I had was that at the beginning I didn't realize actually to be, be a good people manager is you've got to be able to be tolerant of, of certain things and understand that people will always have their own way of doing things so, um, you know, I, I moved into a team leader position in, in, in a role that I was at back in, in, in the early days of my career um, and then stepped into a, a more senior management role and actually realised I'd taken probably too much of a big step with not having enough under my, my belt in that instance. So from that point, I decided to take a step back because I realised that I'd bitten off a bit more than I could chew. Um, and then actually realized I needed to do some work on myself. So, you know, I needed to become more emotionally, emotionally intelligent, shall we say, to understand that, you know, people do have lives outside of work and that will impact them in work. And as a manager, you're not just managing the actual particular thing that you're doing as a company, you're taking on people's emotions you're taking everything that they've got going on in their lives you're the counselor you're the support you're the friends you're the manager and that was a big learning curve for me um and actually come you know let's fast forward now probably what 10 years in in that 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 period of time 
I've actually done a lot of work to put myself in situations for me to become a strong people manager. So um, when I was with Get Living London, uh, now Get Living, um, we had an opportunity, you know, they they did a structured management course. So I, I, I did a training course with a great lady called Lisa Bryce, who um, is an NLP practitioner. So I did a neuro linguistic programming uh, training course over a six month period. And that was like a, a light bulb moment for me when it came to people management. And we did profiling and, you know, we, we, we use colors as the profile. So we did profiling on ourselves. So first of all, we, to be a good manager, you need to know where you profile. So what sort of person was I? And we did that with like the peers in the room. So, you know, I, I was a, I don't remember now, I was a green red. So green was, I'm, I'm detailed, but I'm also very like, right, we're, do we're doing it, let's charge on. So I'm a good leader, you know, I get people motivated, but sometimes I lose people along the way because I'm too focused on the end goal. And then it, it really gets you to reflect on the sort of person that you are. And that training actually, and, and going through that course and being in, you know, having someone like Lisa who, you know, operates and communicates at a, a different level and really gets into the nitty gritty of individuals really made me realise as a, as a people manager that the communication is really key um, and taking people on that journey. So if you've got a mandate to fill or you've got, you know, a, a business plan that you need to deliver, you can't do that on your own. You've got to do that with a team and, and actually you've got to take them on the journey. So they've got to buy into you and they've got to buy into the, uh, you know, your, your sort of plan. Uh, Cause if they don't, your, your life's going to be hard work. Um, so I learned, I've learned that over the period of time. Do I still, would I say I am, a perfect people manager no but I'm much better than I was 10 years ago so uh for anyone listening to this that may have worked with me back then I do apologize because I don't think I was the best person at that point but um hopefully if you speak to anybody that works with me now they would um they would say that I'm you know very people orientated and 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 hopefully a good listener and and a good leader so yeah. that's been my biggest challenge and, and ongoing shall I say because I think you're always working on it you're always working on it. I think you're right. I was talking to not an ex-colleague, but someone that works, still works in the hospitality space. And I obviously used to be in hospitality. And and yeah, I had literally no idea of the pressures of family life or anything outside of work when I was so focused on the job. And then I had my own family. I was like, okay, yeah, I wasn't a very good manager back then. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, I can definitely uh, yeah. state with what you're saying there. And you said you took, uh, so you took a step back. Like, what was that step back and and was that quite hard to do I'm trying to think of the right word but maybe from a pride sense you know point of view or yeah it, it wasn't an easy decision to make um I think for me at the time it the, the step back involved a move in in company so I you know I've worked in the in the, in the property industry for for nearly 20 years um you know, I came straight out of, of school, went and worked in my family business for a, for a few years. So I've always, you know, for me, I, I, I didn't enjoy school. So I kind of fell into the property world um, by a career choice and and actually took me a few years to kind of find where what I wanted to do and, and, and what I was good at. And I started off on the sales side. I'm not a salesman by any means. I was absolutely terrible at it. Um you know, lucky I was still living with parents at the time because I don't think I'd have been able to put food on the table. <laughs> Didn't earn a lot of commission back then. Um, but then found, then kind of fell into property management and, and actually found a niche that I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the problem solving. Um, 
and with that I you know really dug deep and um I really earned you know if, if anything I earned my stripes working for Foxton's uh their training program and, and, and induction is, is, is probably still to this day one of the best that I've been through um so I did five years with those guys and actually worked my way up to a team leader was running a, a my own team in property management was starting to get into my flow with that and then under and then decided that if I wanted to progress I needed to kind of venture out of Foxton's because I think you 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 can get quite institutionalized in, in an organization so decided to move over and, and then came over into the world of build to rent and actually I took that step into build to rent and took a, a, a bigger role you know obviously more money more responsibility etc but obviously coming out of even though in my head I'm still thinking well it's still property management but actually it was a whole nother level in terms of what we were dealing with so you know, I did a couple of years with those guys and actually learned a hell of a lot, but decided that I needed to probably take a step back again in order to work on myself and get myself to a position that was going to be able to, for me to be able to move my career forward. Um, so I took a, a slightly, you could probably say a bit more of a dumbed down role with the next move that I made when I then joined Countrywide Sash Hamptons. Um, but I'd gone back into a bigger corporate environment where, I realised I needed to have a voice and talk about what I wanted to do and have a proper career pathway put in front of me and talk about what training and what support I needed to get me there. And I was really fortunate that I ended up working with people that really invested time in me. Um, I, you know, had two very good line managers that I worked with in my, my, my tenure there, uh, Paul Brooks, um, somebody who's been a, a big support and a big mentor to me. Uh, Catherine Westerling, who's the head of lettings at Hamptons, gave me a lot of autonomy and a, and a lot of support and actually mentored me to get me, you know, where I wanted to be and, and put a lot of time and effort into kind of making me think a bit more outside of the box and commercially minded, which I think you have to be as you as you progress. So it wasn't an easy decision, um, but one I don't regret. And actually, it's something I touch on now when I've seen people that are probably in a similar situation to what I was when I'd probably taken that step maybe a bit too quickly um, to have that conversation to say, look, you know, I've been there. I get, you know, I'm seeing some of the same characteristics that I see at the time. And that this was my experience. It doesn't mean that that's it. You know, you're a failure in your career. Um, and actually, you know, the feedback I've had from people when I've had that conversation has, has always been really positive and, and hopefully they feel supported and it's a lesser an impact to, to somebody. But, you know, it does knock my confidence. Um, you know, I think we're in this world today. You know, a lot of people are quite open now about their challenges. You know, I... I um, I was very admiral of, of 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 listening to Nick from Devil Smith talking about his phobia of getting up and speaking to people in, in you know in public. I I suffer very you know big a big thing for me is imposter syndrome at times. So you know I talk I, I talk a lot to my team about how I feel that at, at, at points, and they look at me very surprised because they're like, really? I'm like, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a thing I have to navigate and manage at times. Um, so I think ultimately, you know, you have to kind of really be comfortable in yourself to make those decisions. And and I think it really helps with the people you surround yourself with to give you that support to do something like that. But I don't regret it. it, it it's paid dividends to me in the long run. Um, and it was the right thing to do at the time. I think it's, um, you know, it's such an important point when 
you know people would people know you people look at your career and think you know you've done you know your career has gone in from what i see yes you said you're taking a step back but in a very upward tra trajectory i can never say that word up to upward trajectory. <laughs> yeah you know someone that's you know worked in the organizations that you have and hold the role that you do now and the roles that you've had to learn that even you could suffer from imposter syndrome i think people people can take a lot from that you know i know i certainly do when you know it's easy to look at someone and and see how successful they've been and and think that it's easy um because because it's they've they're, they're there yeah. you know people want to get where you are or where other people are and i think that's mm. that's a really important point uh yeah and do you know i i completely agree and i i've been in situations where i've spoken to you know peers or you know people that i look up to in the industry who i've got to know over the over the years and had, had these conversations and to hear from them that they've suffered at times you know that and you're like okay well okay i'm not i'm not odd i'm not i'm not an alien feeling this and and, and stuff but um you know, I, a few of my colleagues laugh and, and say to me, you know, I'm, I'm a serial networker and I know I know lots of people in the industry and, um, you know, I've got my kind of finger on the pulse of everything. But I still have these moments. You know, if I go to an event and, you know, especially if I'm at an event on my own, I, before I walk into a room, I have to kind of take a bit of a breath um, because it's just walking into an environment. Now, you know, I've been in the industry a long time. I've been in the London property world for 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 the majority of my career. So if I go to an event, I, you know, I, I do know a lot of people in that room, but it's still quite a daunting thing to walk into a room full of people on your own. Um, and most recently, you know, over the last few years, I'm now being asked to join panels and, you know, talk in public and, 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 and get up on a stage and talk about what you know, I'm doing and what the business I'm working with at that time that we're doing and, and stuff. And I wouldn't say I fear it because I, I do quite enjoy it, but I still have those moments of like, am I really doing this? Is this really me? Like, you know, I, I, I talk to, you know, if I talk to my school friends, like friends that I've, you know, I've been with uh, friends with since I was a kid and you'd say to them that, you know, Sam Smith now is asked to talk on panels and give his professional views on, you know, quite big ticket items in the property world. They'd probably laugh at you and go, really? Smithy doing that? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's kind of two worlds for me sometimes. Um, I think there's a, the, 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 I, I talk again, I talk about this quite openly with the team is there is a, there's probably a home Sam and there's a work Sam. And sometimes I think the work person, you have to, I used to keep things very separate in terms of the two people um, where actually now I found that if I can blend it a little bit more, I get the best out of people because I'm showing them that I am human. Um, would I have probably said to you a couple of years ago that I suffer with imposter syndrome? Probably not because I'd, I'd be worried about what would that look like in the industry? Would someone use that in, you know, and, and say, oh, okay, well, you know, this guy's not comfortable his own skin. We're not going to give him the job. He doesn't know himself. Where actually, I think we're in a very different world now, even where we were, say, five years ago, where people are quite open and honest about their challenges. Because actually, I think it's quite an admirable thing to sit there and go, I am successful, but it's not without its own, you know, um, journey. Everyone's on a journey. Uh, and do I class myself as successful? Probably not to a degree. I I think I've worked hard. Um, I, you know, I take opportunities when they present themselves. I'm probably a bit of a risk taker some people might say um but there's still things i want to achieve and want to do so you know 
I'm not finished yet. I'm I'm just nearly approaching forty, so there's still there's still quite quite a bit for me to do. I think both personally and professionally. So, so you um, so thinking about that that first day that you walked in that first week, you know, I know you started in sales side and and then mm. property management lettings, but you know, looking back to that day, you obviously see new new people coming into into the industry. Um, if you could go back and speak to to Sam in his first week, <laughs> um, what, what what would you say to him? Uh, get your head down and work harder. Um, I, I I'd say so. I I started my career with uh, an agent, uh, in a state agency, working for a company called Townends, which is is now part of Sterling Ackroyd. Um. And if I look back now, I reckon I, I I wouldn't have been a great employee to start with. You know, I, for me, it was I was living for the weekend. It was about earning money to, you know, to go out with friends and and that sort of thing. And if anything, the big attraction to me to the job was the fact that you get a company car. <laughs> so you're talking about I was like eight or about 19, I think, when I, I, I kind of ventured out of working for my parents. And um, I was going to go, right, I'm going to go and be an estate agent. Um I think it, it, anyone starting out now, it, I would be saying to them, it's about the people you surround yourself with and actually the peers that you you have. Um, I'm very fortunate that I have always worked with really good people, um, people that I've worked for or people I've worked on teams with that I've, I've, I've really kind of, you know, looked up to. Um, and I think, you know, for, for sort of five, for probably the first four or five years, I went from sales then went off to doing front-end lettings and kind of found my niche with that and enjoyed you know that side of things and and, and stuff and then I I wanted to get into the property London market in um in London uh and obviously Foxton's was you know and still is really the sort of the agent to a degree that you you want to work for uh and I was still you know early 20s at that time and that's where I kind of decided right I want to take my I'm going to take my career a bit more seriously now um and i need to decide what i want to do and and that's when property management kind of presented itself because i felt like that was going to be the right fit for me um at that time and actually i think anybody who goes into property management because again I, I i went into it with my eyes closed and I open thinking oh you know that looks quite easy it's not <laughs> those frontline property managers nowadays having to deal with landlords and tenants and the legislation changes and all of that that comes out it's not easy um but i think it, it definitely it, it's around making sure you're in the right company with the right people around you and um let's talk about one of your uh your more recent roles um at dandaro you know and i saw yeah. that you were posting about your time on linkedin you know about what you uh, what you'd achieved at Dandara. Talk to me about your role there and um and what you learned along the way whilst you were with with them. Yeah, so I'd say Dandara. Um, going to Dandara Living, I you know it's the biggest role that I'd had to date. Um, it was a, a you know they're they're a big. It's a big operator of built to rent. Um, they're a big player in in the industry, and. A lot of my job there was was the people management and, and and keeping the team motivated, as well as navigating the the ongoing growth that the company's seen over over the last sort of four or five years. Um, it's a it was a team actually that 
has really left an imprint on me that I massively have enjoyed working with. Um, there were so many different facets to it, the fact of facilities management, not just your, your general sort of property management as well as development because they've got a development arm. So I was exposed to a lot of, you know, a site before you've even broke ground and built anything out. I was understanding how that process worked, which I hadn't really had that exposure to a great deal before. So I learned a hell of a lot about the whole life cycle of how an asset becomes from a piece of land to a fully operational building and how it's stacked in terms of how investors then look at how they want to then you know, buy that investment and how we then operate it uh, from, from that side of things. Um, over the period of time of working there, you know, we it was kind of still COVID time. So um, when I first started, the business was still pretty much fully remote to a degree in terms of how they were managing the team. So, you know, that was a new thing for me, permanently sort of working from home uh, to begin with, because I hadn't done that before. That, that threw up a few challenges for me because I'm a people person. I enjoy being in that in that in office environment um but i really carved out the role for myself um so the md had previously been doing the 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 ops role um and he'd, he'd moved up into an md role so he brought me in uh with other other sort of senior people in the business at the time because it was growing at that point um and there was a real camaraderie there with the team everyone really digs deep everyone really works together and i think um they're a northern based company and actually you know, the the northern people of our country, they're, they're sort of the earth, very friendly. Um, and, that, you know, I've, I've made some really good friends from from that organisation um, and also learned a hell of a lot, you know, in my period of time there that, that really has, I think, helped me again as a people manager um, and also my knowledge of the industry. Um, and that's really probably what's then given me opportunities sort of post that with, getting involved with you know the UKA which is um obviously the body that I'm now a part of and, and actively working with um and chairing one of their hubs um you know that opportunity probably wouldn't have presented itself hadn't I've been working you know at the level I had been with with Dandara so yeah it, it, it was a great move and, and something that I, I massively enjoyed so um so now I'm going to ask you about all things built to rent as um <laughs> <laughs> if, if that's okay um yeah. So clearly there's a housing shortage in this country. Um, now, I was going to quote a study from, well, a report from JLL, but there's lots of numbers in it about how many uh, how many completed build-to-rent homes we have. And basically, you know, there's a saying. That number fluctuates as well. Exactly. Quite regularly, it's, it's, it's what it's, report it's, you read, how yeah, many are in the house. So yeah. there's a lot under construction as well coming, but clearly not enough. But, is build to rent the solution for a housing shortage in in the UK? Um, I wouldn't say it's the solution. Uh, I think it's one of the solutions. Um, you know, I think the government has still got a lot to do. I think the fact that we they don't take housing that seriously is quite clear to show by the constant revolving door of housing ministers that we seem to have. Um, I've lost count now of how many housing ministers I've seen speak at industry events and trying to keep up with who, who's actually sat in the seat at any one time. But um, I think BTR is definitely one of the solutions to the issues that we've got in this country. I think, you know, really we're, we're still in its infancy. 10, 12 years now, in, you know, since we've had the sort of first sort of BTR schemes come come to, come to the UK. Um, 
I think one of the key things that I'm doing at the moment working with the UK is around looking at lobbying around, you know, the planning constraints that we have, um, a lot of the constraints that you have in development is what is affecting the pipeline with BTR and not being able to build enough homes. And I think if I look at Manchester as an example, I remember going up to Manchester probably 2015, 2016, and going to a, a you know one of the very early sites that was coming through at the time. And this was when I was working with with Hamptons International. And look, standing at the top of the building and looking out, there was just like a sea of cranes in Manchester. And there was a, a guy stood next to me. He was running a local lettings branch at the time and said to me, I, you know, it's great that Manchester's getting all this infrastructure and all this investment. He said, but I just don't think there's going to be the, you know, the demand there for the amount of units that are going to hit Manchester city centre. So you now forward on seven or eight years and you look at Manchester, you know, it is phenomenal, the growth of BTR in that city and the products ranging from, you know, market level rents right through to, you know, real high end residential offering you the bells and whistles of every new idea that anyone can come out with for an amenity space. And the occupancy rates and the rent being achieved is phenomenal. And it just shows the need for housing in this country. Um it's great to see BTR growing outside of major city centres now. You know, you know, Granger have been a, a big driver of you know, more regional BTR in, in you know places like Derby and Sheffield and you know those sort of secondary cities as they call them. Um, but you know, ultimately, you know, I do think that if the government could come and properly look at BTR and understand what it is and what it does, and get, kind of put their you know get behind it i think it would definitely really kind of kick the industry on um i think we're doing well you know it's it, it, it's a big you know it's a big growing sector but ultimately it would help the government with a lot of their issues and things are evolving i think you know i'm of a generation still that it was always installed in me you know get a deposit buy a property get on the property ladder it was always what my parents were drumming into me from early days of starting working and and, and everything but that's changed now you know the generations have changed the people want to rent and you know people don't want to be stuck to one particular location and i think you know as as, as the new generations come through having that sort of nomad sort of lifestyle of oh do you know what i'm gonna go and live in amsterdam for a year and i can still work and stay with the same job because i work from home you know it doesn't matter where i'm based and you, you see some industries that support that um you know, I, I I get a bit of an insight to the tech world. My brother-in-law works in, in tech and, you know, he worked for a company that was completely remote and he was managing, his team was spread out all across Europe and into Asia. Um, and, you know, they go and decide they were going to go move to and live in another country for a period of time if they wanted to. And you sit there and it's completely contrast to, you know, how I operate of family home, one location, commute to London you know three or four days a week and you know and you kind of think am, am I got have I got this right <laughs> um so I think it's definitely changing you see that with with the buildings and that's again what I like about BTR is it's really looking at resident experience because every building's different you know every operator is different in how they operate the buildings but fundamentally it's offering a decent rental product and ultimately, that's what people want. You know, I'm, I, I think it, it, it is a bit sad to see that the industry 
not BTR as such, but le- but but the lettings industry has been heavily impacted to the private landlords because, you know, I'm a landlord myself, got a rental property. I'd like to say, you know, I'm a good landlord, make sure the property is always maintained and tenants, you know, are happy. Um, and there's a lot of landlords out there that are like that. But unfortunately, you only ever hear the horror stories and, you know, the media are only really covering the horror stories. So it's kind of painting out the, you know, the private landlord as this big nasty monster that all he cares about is his money at the end of the day. Where my experience, having worked in both sides of, you know, institutional as well as private landlords, that there's actually a lot of nice private landlords out there as well. So, uh, yeah, I think it's not the answer, but it's one of the answers. Um, and hopefully, you know, with, with with stuff that the UK are doing and and, and other other bodies, we'll we'll start to get some airtime uh, around um, getting government behind it a bit more. And um, it seems to be that the main talking point around solving the crisis shortage whatever you want to call it is well we're not building enough you say well well yes that's right but given what build costs have got to now and the costs of operating a building as well even if we could meet some of the well the target changes all the time from the government as to how many we should be building a year even if we did build that many homes do we think that that would ease the pressure on both demand and also the prices? Because, you know, rental growth seems to have been quite steep, you know, uh, in in the sector over the last few years, certainly over the last couple of years. So you know, with build costs being what they are, I guess, is the question. Hmm. Can we ever, you know, is that age of really affordable living coming to an end? um it's a good question it is a good question i think you know definitely post the pandemic of seeing you know increased operating costs of 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 buildings that i've been working on and and across um to be honest i don't think i i haven't got the answer on that gareth if i'm honest i think the affordable route you know the government need to do more around offering that affordable homes um you know, I've, I've seen it firsthand, you know, working at Get Living, there was a big affordable arm uh, to the Get Living project. Um, and that, you know, barely scratched the surface in terms of what housing needs were needed in in Stratford uh, and, in you know, down in East London at that particular time. I think the affordable literally flew out the door within like two weeks. And we're talking like a couple of thousand units. It was phenomenal just to see sort of how quickly that went. Um I think there's a the, there's a number of things that need to go in there. I think from a having set, had exposure now to development costs and 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 how that really impacts decisions around what's going into a building. There's stuff there that I think needs to become more regulated in terms of pricing and and and, and that type of thing. Um, you know, obviously the the renters reform bill coming in around trying to mirror some of what Scotland have brought in around you know stabilising rents. I'm not anti it um, at all, but I think there needs to be, as anything, when the government are throwing new legislation out there, they don't do enough of actually getting around the table with the right people to actually understand the impacts that that has on overall. Because what fundamentally what you're going to do is if they don't properly roll this out, they're going to fracture having institutional investment coming into the UK 
into the UK rental market and buying these buildings and operating these buildings because you're going to say, right, rents are capped here, but all your other costs are going up. So you've, you've, you've kind of got a balancing act constantly. So there's got, it's not just looking at the rents. Okay, well then how do we, how do we affect everything else? So do we, do we make sure salaries are being benchmarked correctly? So, you know, minimum wage, like, okay, okay you know living minimum wage you've got london waiting all of this stuff that comes into play but are we doing enough there do we not need to actually be looking at salaries and going actually for somebody to live comfortably in the uk is our current minimum wage correct you know there's so many things that feed into it um but the challenges from an operator side are ongoing because you know 25 percent growth to net is every every time we sit down with a budget the magic number 25 percent growth to net but it was that eight nine years ago it can't still be 25 percent growth to net it's just unrealistic you know so i think if you're going sub 30 in this current market i think you're doing okay i think you're doing well um obviously it's number of units it's volume all of that sort of stuff but you know, I think the mindsets of investors and how things are put together needs to really shift and move on. You know, salaries have been a big thing over the last couple of years, definitely since the post the pandemic, with obviously inflation costs and everything. Um, you know, wages haven't r- risen at the same rate. Um, and, you know, if I look at operationally, the teams that are majorly impacted are our foot soldiers. They're our front of house people that always get hit because, they're you know they're, they're probably around that sort of mid to high 20s mark um and they're the ones that get hit by a lot of the big inflation costs that we see as in in the country um so for me it's around you know they're, they're the backbone of any operation they're the forefront to our residents but they're the ones that get hit by a lot of what what's, what's happening at the moment so do customers understand what build to rent is and do they need to a good question do customers understand what builds around um i think it depends on probably where you are if i'm honest um having worked uh, in the manchester market for the last couple of years i think if you were to ask a renter in manchester yes they would because of the 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 the, the volume of offering you know in very close proximity especially in sort of like the salford sort of area of manchester um and you see a lot of serial movers that have gone from one scheme to the next and they, they really understand it. Um, I think it's getting there, but again, I think it would depend on location. Um, you know, if I, it's interesting because, you know, people that have known me a long time, you know, friends, family, um, if they go, you know, oh, you're still an estate agent. <laughs> <laughs> And it's just like, um, and, and even my parents, bless them, you know, it's still like, um, oh yeah, it's Sam's estate agent. I'm not, I'm not anymore. But you know, um, so I think trying to explain what B- BTR is if you're not in the industry, it, it's sometimes quite difficult um, for people to understand it uh, and what it is. Uh, and and again, I know, you know, I've listened to lots of podcasts where people ask similar questions, and they go, "Is built to rent the right name?" Well, what else are you going to call it? You know, I don't, I don't know what else you could call it. Obviously, in the states, they call it multifamily, which sometimes doesn't make sense to me why it's called multifamily. Um, but I think there's probably more we need to do to 
let it become more commercially aware to the consumer um you know and that you know who knows what what the future will hold that you know will operators start advertising on you know tv and that sort of thing who, who you know i could see it going that way and that it happens in the states you know especially with the with you know the big operators out there advertising in like, like local tv networks and stuff so it could happen here who knows but um I, th- I think london and manchester yes i think the other cities are catching up um and understanding you know what it is but uh you know it's becoming competitive as well so we've talked about the the ukaa which um you obviously become where you were a part of and you've just uh taken on another role within that so for those people that don't know what the UKA, ukaa is and what your role is talk to me about that Okay, so the UK Apartment Association is an affiliation of the National Apartment Association, which is the American equivalent. Um, We are a very, very tiny group when you compare it to to the States, but we are over 350 members now, uh, all from the the sector, both from operational, investment, supplier, um, and it's really kind of bringing together you know, people from the industry and striving for, um, I kind of call it the Arla of the BTR world. So the like the property market, the BTR world, where they're wanting, having a body that represents the sector. So we're talking about, you know, I've, I've mentioned obviously just, just now about lobbying around um, local government regarding planning and getting them to understand what BTR is, how the apartment uh, UKA can support that and, um, I had some conversations we got going on at the moment with landlord licensing, which is a big, big topic at the moment in Birmingham. Um, so collectively, all of the operators that have got assets in in Birmingham have all come together to basically, uh, led by Moda, um, who have got you know been quite you know kind of flying the the sort of flag on this, saying you know this is a really big impact to our budgets this landlord licensing that they're looking to issue. Um, and the UK have facilitated bringing all these operators together under one roof to oppose some of the licensing restrictions that they're wanting to, to put in place. It works for a single landlord. It doesn't work for an institutional landlord. Um, you know, you're talking like one particular building, it's a quarter of a million pounds that they've got to, uh, to create for on, onto their OPEX. So ultimately you're talking a lot of money. And the UK are at the forefront of this, getting, you know, the right people in front of, um, you know, the local government and national government as well. You know, we're, we're now really wanting to kind of push the to get in front of Parliament, you know, and sitting MPs to talk about the the issues in, you know, their their constituents and uh, constituents in those areas. So I think the UK has done a lot up to this point. Um, best practice guide is something that's come out over the last few years, which again is a real collaborative of all of the operators feeding into best practice of how we operate as BTR operator. And it's probably something I really love about the sector because everybody's quite happy to share information because it's still up and coming and there's lots of different facets and there's lots of different things that are changing. Um, you know, we had the conference just, just last month or I know this month actually, um, and the amount of, you know, everyone's got 
buildings in different locations and you know buildings in scotland which throw up their own challenges and they might be two years into their journey and you might be launching your first scheme in scotland so to be able to pick up the phone to appear in another business and go can i pick your brains on this because you've met them through the uka and the encouragement of sharing information i'm sure they don't share all their usps but you know generally a lot of information sharing happens and i think the uk are really striving to how we attract the young talent to the uh, to to the sector as well because recruitment is a big um a big headache for the sector we're not recruiting enough people into it um there was a conversation, I think, um, I think Nick might have mentioned it, Nick Hammond might have mentioned it when he was talking to you, Gareth, that the volume of units coming through equating to the amount of talent coming into the industry doesn't match. So we've got more, we're going to have more buildings, more units, but not enough people to manage them. Um, so how do we get, you know, that, that talent pool through? Um, I was chatting to another recruiter not that long ago where, an operator puts out a mandate going, I want somebody with X amount of experience in build to rent. Well, that pool of people is very, very small. And actually what you're ending up doing is you're just regurgitating the same people coming out. And I probably could put myself in that pool of me being one of those people because there's not a lot of people that have got extensive experience. And I wouldn't still put me in a, a pool of saying I've got extensive experience. I've got some more than others. Um, so the UK are really supporting how we do that. And again, it's looking at recruitment drive and, and how do we attract people to the sector? So I've got involved to, um, I, I was involved with the Northwest Hub, um, which was primarily for obviously Manchester, Leeds and and, and, and the North of England. Um, so I was, I was part of the team there that, that, that got that off the ground and it's been a successful launch. And that's led by uh, Dougie, Dougie Orton Wade over at Native, doing a fantastic job. And I was then back in London um, and there was conversations going on about a London hub coming through. And so I had some conversations with with, with the senior team at uh, UKA and said I'd be really interested to get involved. And um, I was then asked to be the chair, which, again, very flattered uh, and very honoured to, to, to take that post. So what we're now looking at doing, you know, London, big footprint to cover. Um, there's obviously a lot still going on in London, but London and the southeast. So our hub is going to be quite a substantial size. Um, if you're looking at, you know, the sort of home counties now, there's sites coming through in Reading, Maidenhead, High Wycombe, Milton Keynes, all of these areas, Brighton, Hove. Um, so there's a big network to to, to cover there. And we're, we're putting together a a committee of people from all different parts of the sector, be it suppliers, be it operators, be it from the investment side, um, and all quite, you know, people that know their stuff and, and, and have worked in their various parts of their industry for quite some time. Um, but I'm also really keen to get new up and coming people in the industry onto the panel because it can't be the same faces talking about the same thing. We need a fresh approach. We need younger members coming through. And I think that's probably one thing as a sector we need to get better at that. If I look at the members of the UKA, you can go to some of the events and it's a lot of the same people that tend to be more in, you know, mid to senior level roles. We're actually, let's hear about the guy, the, the, the assistant resident services person sat in the front desk 
you know, doing a four on four off shift, come in and come and tell us what's it actually like there at the coalface. Um, and that's again something I'm, I'm I've been a big advocate of when I when I was at Dandara. Um, we did a, a back to the floor session where I went and basically was a concierge for the day. Uh, did a 12 hour shift from seven in the morning till seven in the evening. And I kid you not, it was hard work. And and, and actually I, I walked out of that with a, a a big sense of understanding better what that role was. So I think that, you know, that those are ideas that I'm putting out there now into the hub of how can we do something like that? And could we encourage that being, you know, a norm as an operator that we do job swaps for a day, you know, get the guy from who's up and coming through the ranks to come and sit in my seat for a day and get a flavor for for what happens at in my day job and me to understand what's still happening at the coalfax um so again it, 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 the uka i think is, is they've got a big mandate to fill um there's lots that's come off the back of this year's conference uh very much around awareness of the sector and 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 the lobbying element um from there but you know we, we there's a good leadership team in place there uh and i think you know the the people getting involved you know it's it's all voluntary no one's paid everyone's giving up you know some of their free time uh and fitting it in around obviously day jobs so obviously you know that that can be a bit difficult to to make sure you're still fulfilling what you need to um so anyone who would, would want to get involved i say you know you need to make sure that you you get involved for the right reasons and and you do it and you actually do genuinely partake because ultimately you know they need people to to really contribute Oh well, hopefully, that, hopefully the podcast is a rallying does that, cry. Does that give you a steer? <laughs> Let's get the concierges into it, into the UK, and, uh, yeah. and giving their thoughts. I think that's great. Um, I always have to ask an ESG question because it's you know we talk about it God, so much. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, it's funny you say that because my, you know I was reading about the recent sort of backlash in the US, mainly from Republican right-wing senators about ESG and um you know are we seeing a little bit of the same ESG fatigue in the UK would you say or is everybody still fired up to try and deliver the promises that they're making I'm honest with you Gareth where I sit I am still really probably unclear on what it is we need to be doing completely to tick all those boxes and actually there we go shouldn't refer to it as ticking a box because as of anything sometimes things can end up just being a bit of a buzzword and someone throws in an esg slide of right we've ticked the box because we we're completely paperless so that's sustainable you know and, and, and it's like if you actually speak to somebody who and again i had exposure to this at dandara because they're head of esg um brilliant lady who you know really knows her stuff when it comes to this and actually I learned more from having probably an hour with her and talking through what the objectives were of a business than I did sitting paying 500 pounds to attend a conference where most people looked like they were falling asleep <laughs> um, so <laughs> if I'm honest <laughs> um, not naming names but <laughs> um so I, I, again, I think it's that educational piece. And again, the UK are getting behind this around how do we educate people to understand what ESG means and what 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 is it? Um, you know, Dandara have done quite a lot of work over the last few years in in 
in that and bringing in you know ahead of ESG so they're taking it seriously to really go out and bring incredible people that work in that you know that side of the the, the sector to really kind of hone in and then when you understand actually it's the whole chain you know it's your procurement processes it's how you develop and build the buildings how you then operate when you actually then start to really understand it it makes sense but it could just do with somebody speaking layman's terms sometimes in a room and getting up and going this is what the e means this is what the s means this is what the g means and actually fundamentally this is how this fits into your individual sectors and you know whatever it may be um and hopefully that you know there are people like that like i say leslie i've just mentioned she, she she's one of those it's okay you know she can get up and talk into front of a room of esg professionals who know what they're talking about and, and speak that that language i come from it if i'm never comfortable i'm like right talk to me in layman's terms really plainly what do i need to do to, in order to make sure that any business i work in are going to be able to achieve those credentials and that's i think technically it's cut the jargon let's just be really clear about what it is we need to do um and again the government it changes you know i, I hear that from from people that work in you know in that side of of, of our, our our industry that it is changing um they'll go with one thing and then it's slightly there's a different variation of it at a later date uh, and that feeds into a lot of the legislation uh, side of things for us at the moment that we're having to you know manage so um when i was researching this episode your parents were into property was that right what was that like growing up yeah so i i i grew up um so my parents had their own catering business um so i've grown up in a bit of an entrepreneurial sort of world my parents were always i've always been self-employed they've never worked for anyone um so it was kind of for me school yeah i got through school and uh come out the other end um and then my parents were like right what are you going to do if you're not going on to college or and stuff so um my my, my mum literally was like right you're coming to work in the business and that was a really good footing for me because it installed work ethic and actually the work ethic of watching my mum over the years you know she she was the the all-rounder I'd say in the business she was the one doing the you know she'd be doing the books of an evening she'd be up early in the next morning you know going out and getting supplies and and and, and stuff and they did event catering and, and and all sorts so you know it was lots of client management and all that sort of stuff and um I learned a hell of a lot working with my mum um over those years uh anyone who's worked with their parents can probably feel the pain that family and business is is tough um and you know i could have probably carried on working for them and who knows i could have eventually taken over the business but i kind of needed to spread my wings and um you know for me watching my parents you know through property um and when i say they were in property they they brought houses done them up bought another one and you know it was kind of like moving really so i've always been into sort of looking on right move and taking an interest in you know even before i owned a property or anything it was kind of something i was always kind of interested in and probably nosy to go around nosy how nice houses and stuff um, so when the opportunity presented itself to get involved in property, I was like, oh, yeah, that could be all right. I had a friend at the time, actually, who was working for the agent that I first started working with. And, you know, 
he had a <laughs> he had an off the peg suit from Next and uh, was driving around in a Peugeot convertible that looked quite swanky. And I thought, right, I I, uh, I want to go and do that. <laughs> and um, that's kind of how I got involved. I remember I'm telling my mum that right, I'm I'm I don't want to work at the business anymore. So I worked for there for about three years, and um, I'm going to go and do this. And uh, I remember my mum saying to me, well, if you leave, you can't come back. <laughs> <laughs> and I never did go back. So, um, you know, she's, they've sold the business on now. They're, you know, she's, uh, she, she hasn't got it anymore. But, um, yeah, it, it, it was a great, a great footing and actually installed the work ethic in me. Um, and, and actually, if I look back on it now, there was some really, some really good times. So, yeah. And, um, when I look at all the things you've done, you know, throughout your different roles that you've talked about in our conversation today, um, there aren't many areas of of property industry that you haven't covered or got involved in. But, <laughs> yeah. <the compliment. laughs> um, what do you think you've still got to learn about the industry even after, what, 20 years in the industry? I don't know. You know, it's really scary when I look back on that because I don't, you know, I don't, I don't look. It feels like two minutes ago in 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 some respects. Um, what have I still got to learn? Do you know what I think? You're you're, you're always learning. Um, you know, when I first started off in the property world, it wasn't that heavily regulated, if at all. To be fair, over the last fifteen years you know, the regulations that have now come through, you know, one of the big first ones obviously was deposit regulations. You know, I remember when, you know, TDS and my deposits first started coming around, you had to register, you know, tenancy deposits and everyone was like, oh my God, you know, this is completely ridiculous. And where now, you know, you don't even think about it. It's just a thing. Um, I, I, I think one of the biggest challenges over the last couple of years is obviously now is adapting to the Building Safety Act. Um and that's something that I've really kind of put myself in the middle of to really understand what that means, you know, as an operator uh, and the changes. And, and and again, I think, you know, it, it, off the back of Grenville, 100% it was needed to really, you know, set a standard on how you operate buildings. Um, and, you know, I, and I've actually been exposed and, and, and have worked with and still work with some really knowledgeable people in building maintenance and facilities and, and, I'm always learning, Gareth, on that side of things because everyone does it slightly differently. I don't think anyone, I wouldn't say anyone's, you know, better than the other, but it's just interesting when you speak to people that have just worked in that one part of the sector. And and again, I think historically it's always maybe been a bit of a tick of a box, but I've learned a hell of a lot over the last, probably even the last couple of years, really. Um, and I still think we'll continue to learn, you know, new legislation will come through. The renters reform bill, whatever that materialises to be, that will be another thing to learn and, and, and adapt and change to. Um, I think if anyone was to come on here and say, you know, in the property world, I, I know it all. You don't, you know, I still sit in a room now and, you know, someone will throw something out. We love acronyms in this industry. You know, I've heard I've, sometimes I thought I've heard them all and I'm like, wow, that's a new one. <laughs> um and, I, and and again, I think it's around the people that you surround yourself with um, is is also key as well to to make sure that you're you're kind of keeping on top of what's happening in the industry. Okay, so um, 
come on to the quick fire round questions now. So if you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? Uh, well, you know, the current world we're in at the moment is quite scary. I think, um, I know it sounds a bit cliche to say world peace, but, you know, I just, it would be lovely to be, I've got two children that I'm bringing up in a world that frightens me sometimes. It would be lovely to just have no wars happening and just peace and people just being really nice to each other. Um, so that would be a big thing for me. Damn, what advice would you give to someone who wants to change direction but doesn't know where to start? Get a mentor. Um, that's been one of the key things for me that have really helped me through my career. Having a mentor, not necessarily someone that's, that you work directly with or maybe not even in the same sector as you, but having someone that you know you look up to and inspires you, um, that you can talk through that stuff and, and give you that sort of you know, impartial advice is key. Okay. And what's going to be your next big change? So I'm doing a bit of a U-turn. Um, I am going back to Dandara Living. Um, so there's some changes happening in the company. Um, their the former MD uh, has, has has recently just left the business, uh, and I've been asked to to return as the uh, director of operations. So. Um, bit of a U-turn, bit of a, a whirlwind year for me this year because I wasn't expecting going back to Dandara, but an opportunity that was too good to turn down to to kind of take the the, the top seat and and really take the reins of the business uh, and go back to a team that um, I'm very fond of. So big challenge ahead. Um, some big things for Dandara coming up for 2024, uh, really expanding their operations into the third party space. So really looking forward to that. But no doubt will be some uh, some hurdles to, to overcome. And the last question, um, if you were to recommend a guest or more than one guest for me to speak to on the podcast, who would it be? Who would it be? Oh, there's loads of people I'd recommend. Who would I recommend? I would recommend Leslie Roberts. Um, I just mentioned mentors. Leslie, over the last probably 18 months, has become... Uh, an unofficial mentor you should probably say we've become quite good pals over the last uh couple of years but um very knowledgeable uh lady in the in in our organization a real spearhead for um you know women in the industry uh and and, and anyone in the industry really um so she would be someone i'd highly recommend and um, have a huge amount of respect for right thanks we'll definitely uh definitely speak to leslie and uh, get an episode recorded um sam thanks very much for joining me on on the podcast today um when the night before i i go to record a podcast is when i'm sort of finishing the research and and i spoke to spoke to my wife last night she said oh who's coming to join you tomorrow and and when i i described you i said that what you don't know about build to rent i don't think it's probably worth knowing given uh <laughs> given how long you spent in it and like i said i mean that as a compliment for how long you spent in it well, i'm um, very flattered i'm very flattered <laughs> um I, I, yeah I, I could argue that but uh i'll uh, I'll, I'll take it thank you <laughs> thanks so, very much. thank you for having me it's been a pleasure